Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. What's happening in our lives? Uh, uh, I just got evicted from my backyard for recording because evidently it's springtime is too loud in Washington, D.C. this time of year. I had birds flitting around me like I was Snow White. Uh, oh, I thought you were going to say morning. you were being too loud. It was the birds that were being too loud. Bird, <laughs> some combination of birds and trash trucks, <laughs> somewhere between the two. But it was not podcast recording uh, conditions. Unfortunately. I'm amazed you are ever able to do it outside. Yeah, it is. It is like a little treat of uh, the pandemic times, is that I can make my little mobile office out in the backyard, but not when the animals are being quite as uh, as as well-spoken as they're being today. Well, at least they, there still are animals. <laughs> There's no cicadas this year, so. That's what I was going to ask. I was going to ask when cicada season is. Every year? Well, Alan. A couple. Excellent question. There are cicadas every year. However, a certain breed of cicadas only comes out on years that are on prime numbered cycles. So there are 13 year cicadas. There are 17 year cicadas. Last year was the 17 year cicadas. So we don't get to see them for another 17 years. And then we can be excited and grossed out all over again. If you're ever wondering, every mid-Atlantic school student has to memorize that speech, kind of like the Pledge of Allegiance. (laughs) Fun fact, my namesake, my namesake was actually an entomologist. So I come by it naturally. Who was your namesake? Quinta Cattell. She was my great-grandmother, and she studied bugs. That is very cool. I'm not that into bugs, but I do know cicada facts. (laughs) Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0, a.k.a. Rational Security Special Reasons Unit. We are here today to bring you some special reasons to think about and ways to think about some of the week's big national security stories. I'm joined, of course, as always, by my co-host, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. And Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And we are thrilled to be joined by special guest, international law specialist, former counselor of for international law at the State Department, uh, law professor extraordinaire, Shimen Kainer. Shimen, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. And I mean morning. <laughs> I know, Shaman, you are our officially our first West Coast guest. And at our new early morning recording time, which I've mentioned several times because of the challenges it poses, this is especially impressive for you. So we really appreciate you being here. And for maybe the first time ever, we actually mean that this time. <laughs> well, I appreciate what I think is the sincerity, although now I'm going to double, you know, rethink that all day long. Hmm, did they really want me there in the morning? As soon as we get a guest from Hong Kong or Taiwan or something, I think then you will get bumped. For the time being, you are officially our most appreciated guest. So take that take that as you will. Feel free to put that on whatever t-shirt or pillow you like. Right right on the top of your CV, right? Under under service. Most appreciated guest for Ratsack. I'm editing it already. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. 
Well, we are incredibly lucky to have Shaben here to join us for what we are calling the We Hear the Hag is Lovely in the Springtime edition of Rational Security. Um, because we, among other issues this week, are going to be talking a little bit about an issue that is very much up Shaben's area of specialty, and that is the question of international accountability for the horrible things happening uh, in Ukraine the past few weeks, thanks to the war, Russia's war of aggression happening there. So our three topics this week, for topic one, go straight to Den Haag. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. In recent days, Russia's already illegal war in Ukraine has begun to cross more and more illegal lines, as Russian forces seem to be clearly be targeting civilians and even removing them from Ukrainian territory. What avenues might there be for holding them accountable for these actions? And where should these efforts fit into the broader effort to end the conflict? Topic two, the 400-pound hacker in the room. We'll throw back to our former president's First public comments on cybersecurity, as I recall, if I think that's right, during the 2016 campaign. Three weeks into the war in Ukraine, Russia has yet to target the United States and its allies with cyber attacks. But this week, the White House is aggressively hinting that that may be about to change. Why would the Russians choose to act now, and what should we be expecting? And topic three, third wave pessimism. There are signs that a new wave of the coronavirus may be headed our way, but that hasn't stopped Congress from cutting the Biden administration's requests for pandemic resources by $15 billion, even as mask mandates and other counter-pandemic measures around the country are continuing to be rolled back. How should we be preparing for the next phase of the coronavirus pandemic, and what explains Congress's response? Alan, let me hand it over to you for our first topic. So Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine is raising a host of legal issues that uh, will persist long after the fighting stops, however this uh, terrible conflict ends. For example, the International Court of Justice, which is the United Nations top court, has held that Russia's war in Ukraine is legal and has ordered Russia to stop, though no one really thinks that in the short term uh, this decision will lead to an end in hostilities. Uh, but in addition, there are growing calls, including from President Joe Biden, to treat or at least consider Vladimir Putin as a war criminal. Uh, given not just the uh, illegality of the war in Ukraine, but also the fact that Russians are clearly targeting civilians and committing uh, other atrocities. Now, ordinarily, uh, I would uh, turn to Scott as our international law expert, but I, I think Scott will not be offended if I say that I think today Shemen is our expert international law expert. So, Shemen, I'm going to I'm going to ask you, you know, what do you think about the, the the general question of legal liability? I mean, what routes are legally available to hold Russia and Russian leaders, whether Vladimir Putin or other or others, uh, accountable for their actions in, in Ukraine? And, and you know, are you optimistic that there will be accountability at some point for this? You know, this whole situation is um, such a mess on so many levels, and you don't need me to tell you that, expert or non-expert. And, and I got to say, um, Alan, it's even a little bit more complicated than that, because in your lead up, you said the ICJ found that the war was illegal. It hasn't even gotten to that step yet, but it did order Russia to stop. And um, I don't know about you, if, if we're reading the same headlines, does not seem to have had much of an effect, unfortunately, uh, rather predictably. So. It's really interesting to be thinking about accountability before we got on the call this morning. It seemed to me that the focus on accountability in part is because we all 
are so desperate to find something that we can can do or can talk about that seems like it might actually be constructive or proactive. So we, as lawyers, but also um, you know, casual observers, I think find some comfort in being able to talk about the comeuppance that these evil people will will eventually get or might eventually get. I mean, there's also some talk about accountability as deterrence, but again, I think. Uh, that ship has probably sailed, at least for those most deeply involved in in the aggression and the war crimes that are going on here. And uh, you know, I'm sure, as, as Scott will say too, uh, if we want to get a little legalistic about it, you know, we can separate those kind of two buckets of really bad things that are going on. The one is is the illegal war to begin with, and even if the world court hasn't called it illegal yet, I'm happy to. And I think uh, I think most international lawyers are. And then the war crimes that are going on. Uh, and again, the, you know, the administration, the Biden administration was uh, a little cagey about coming out and calling what's going on war crimes to begin with. Completely understandably, it's not a, an allegation that you want to throw around lightly. And there are you know, certain attacks that that may be we need some more uh, information about to definitively characterize as war crimes, but targeting civilians is absolutely going on based on all publicly available information. And that is is absolutely horrendous. So I think, yes, talking about accountability maybe makes us feel a little bit better. Uh, we are being proactive. I think Quinta had a Arbiters of Truth episode talking about you know information gathering, evidence gathering. It's super important. But uh, you know, this is going to be going on, as you said, Alan, for, for a long time. And uh, the pathways forward, we can talk about them. I'm hopeful that something might pan out eventually. So th- thanks for, for correcting me on the, on, on the ICJ point about whether they have formally uh, found the war uh, to be illegal or not. I, I do have a follow-up question for you. And, and I, I think, you know, for my sake, I'm not an international law expert. And I think for many in our audience, um, I think it might be actually helpful just to go through uh, and at least at a high level explain the two kind of buckets of illegality, right? So what is it that makes the war itself illegal? And then second, what specific, and obviously there's a lot of fog of war and a lot of things we don't know, what specific categories of Russian conduct that we know of so far are violations of uh, international law? Absolutely. And, and Scott, I welcome you to, to jump in at any point here as well. I'm sure you've got lots of thoughts on this topic. But the the two buckets I was talking about, and uh, yeah, they've got fancy Latin names as lots of international law concepts do. Uh, so the use ad bellum is the law of resorting to the use of force to begin with. Uh, and then the use in bello, we call it, is you know how you use that force. And it may seem a little strange to, to treat them as separate buckets. I mean, some observers, of course, are thinking, well, hey, if the whole war is illegal. It isn't everything you do in the war illegal as well. Uh, but actually, we, we do, as international lawyers, you know, separate those into two categories. And we're talking about international law, obviously, because this is a conflict between countries. But uh, you better believe that uh, most of what Russia is doing is violating Ukrainian domestic law as well. And, uh, you know, individuals in Russia who are perpetrating acts of violence might well also be subject to domestic prosecution. But we talk about international law uh, supposed to be a constraint on the use of force. I know a lot of people have expressed uh, some, some legitimate skepticism about the extent to which the international legal system has actually been effective at restraining the use of force. And we can get into uh, the United Nations and Security Council then at some point if we want to. But the bottom line is that uh, coming out of World War II, when countries signed the UN Charter not too far from, uh, from UC Hastings, right down in, in San Francisco, 
they said that uh, using force, the resort to force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state would be presumptively unlawful. Uh, and that the only situations in which force could be used, and here they're thinking primarily military force, although I know we'll have a segment on cyber attacks a little bit later in this conversation, that the only authorized uses of force would either be ones authorized by the UN Security Council, and as all of your listeners know, Russia has a veto in that body, so we're not going to get authorizations there either you know, for the use of force in defense of, of Ukraine or anything else. Uh, and then uh, the use of force in self-defense. And so Ukraine right now is using force in self-defense. And if uh, other countries end up you know, going to help Ukraine at its request, that they would be using force in what we call uh, collective self-defense. But Russia invading Ukraine... There's no self-defense rationale there, and uh, it is presumptively an unlawful use of force under the UN Charter and what we call customary international law. The second bucket is, you know, what are they doing now that they're in Ukraine? And uh, we sometimes refer to this as the laws of war or international humanitarian law. I you know, teach my students there are different ways to, to parse it. Uh, but I think about the requirements of military necessity. So any particular attack needs to materially advance the war in, in terms of its actual concrete military objectives. So bombing a theater with civilians sheltering in the basement is not going to give you a military advantage. There's no what we call military necessity to that attack. The principle of distinction, you have to differentiate between civilians and combatants. It was easier to do back in the day when you had you know, armies fighting each other wearing uniforms, but nonetheless, uh, you must still differentiate between civilians and combatants. And so you know, there's a separate category of civilians who are directly participating in hostilities. You can uh, sort of lose your civilian status based on certain activities. But again, sheltering in the basement of a theater, uh, there's no argument there that you're directly participating in hostilities and therefore targetable as a civilian. And then we have this proportionality requirement, which is probably the hardest to apply in the sense that if you do have a concrete and direct military advantage expected from an attack, the laws of war do build in some, you know, authorized what we call, unfortunately, collateral damage. But again, you know, that only even arises if you're targeting something that is a legitimate military objective. And I think the biggest horrors that we're seeing right now are arising from what appears to be the indiscriminate, um, or even less than indiscriminate, right? It's even worse than indiscriminate. It's purposeful targeting of civilians, uh, not to mention a whole host of other war crimes outside of the targeting category that we appear to be starting to see, like if reports are uh, are accurate, uh, and I have no reason to believe that they're not, uh, actually you know, rounding civilians up and uh, carting them over into Russia. So uh, it's just a, a complete disregard of everything that, that we had understood, we being the community of international lawyers and military advisors. I mean, these are also rules that uh, most militaries take extremely seriously. Unfortunately, it's not unprecedented, right? A lot of what we're seeing played out in Syria as well. Uh, and I think that that point needs to be emphasized. But the, the scale uh, and rapidity of this assault on civilians is, is just absolutely shocking. 
I think that's a phenomenal overview. And the only thing I would flag, I think it's a really interesting hook about this, is that Russia, of course, doesn't acknowledge that this is a war of aggression, right? They have put forward a facially problematic argument, actually a couple of legal arguments um, in an Article 51 letter, the letter that that countries send to the UN Security Council when they're acting pursuant to their inherent right of self-defense recognized by the uh, UN Charter, where they said basically, they basically attached a copy of Putin's February 23rd speech with a little bit of a topper that kind of tries to frame it a little bit and submitted it, basically saying, well, look, we're acting in collective self-defense with Luhansk and Donetsk, which now we recognize to be independent countries. These are the kind of separate separated Ukrainian territories that Putin recognized were invaded. There's something like a self-defense argument, like a very, very preemptive self-defense argument. Uh, And then they also had a humanitarian intervention part of this, where they said, oh, genocide is being committed against the Russian-speaking people of Ukraine. That ended up providing the jurisdictional hook by which the country of Ukraine was able to bring Russia before the International Court of Justice, um, which we've seen a decision now issued uh, that Shemin already alluded to on provisional measures, kind of like a preliminary injunction that's supposed to preserve the interests of the parties until you could reach kind of resolution on the merits. Um, That basically said, hey, stop the war, Russia. It's a really innovative use of the court's jurisdiction. And frankly, without that hook, I don't know how exactly the ICJ would get jurisdiction over this. It really was a big hoisted on your own petard moment for Putin in particular. Um, You actually had his lawyers representing him before the ICJ basically saying, ignore the speech, ignore the speech. This is what we really meant to say. This is what Article 51 meant. Really, we were relying on self-defense, not genocide. So it's irrelevant. Even then, like, I mean, Shemin, I'd be curious about your thoughts about this. But like, it seemed like the court kind of went beyond what one might have preliminarily respect or expect in a filing like this? I mean, the the genocide convention argument that really the hook for jurisdiction is about the interpretation of the genocide convention. Ukraine is saying Russia is misinterpreting the genocide convention. And they were able to get provisional measures that basically say, hey, stop the invasion, stop all sorts of armed conflict. Actually, does it even tie it to military operations justified by the genocide actions, which is actually what Ukraine's filing did? Although I think that's I don't think that's a substantive difference so much as a kind of like a linguistic difference. So I think it's just a sign that like the international legal community actually is like leaning in hard on these things. You actually had a number of judges kind of say, I've got some concerns about our jurisdiction here, but for various equitable reasons, I'm going to go with this anyway, uh, to very, very paraphrase it very lightly. Like it's pretty exceptional. Now, is that something that people might come to regret in future cases? I don't know. You know, you always find like bad facts create sometimes bad law. Um, I don't inherently have a problem with this. I, all of it seems kind of right to me, but I also get why in the future a United States would sometimes find itself on the wrong end of people trying to make arguments for the ICJ for a variety of policy measures might regret this move by the ICJ to accept this sort of argument on the basis of the Genocide Convention. I don't think the United States is as worried about the Genocide Convention, but there might be other treaties that you could see a similar sort of flip of the usual presumptive facts that would have more conventionally established jurisdiction. But I don't know. Yeah, it's been so it's been so interesting to watch, Scott. You know, this is uh, Harold Coe, who is one of the uh, attorneys representing Ukraine, referred to this uh, strategy at a, a panel at the Blavatnik School at Oxford at the time of the filing as, as lawfare, but of, of the good kind. Uh, so it's a really interesting legal strategy. We're assuming he did not mean the blog. We're assuming he meant the actual <laughs> lawfare. We don't know if that's the case, but we're assuming that. Harold's, Harold's my former boss, I'm right, assuming. Yes. Uh, lawfare, the blog, is only the good kind, of course. So uh, just taking a step back, right? So we're talking about accountability, which is the theme that, that Alan put on the table. Uh, we can talk about the, the state, the country of Russia itself, uh, of course, which is you know the, the successor state to the Soviet Union, which is 
why it's got this veto in the Security Council and so forth. Although another prong of the lawfare strategy is to start to question whether or not Russia was ever actually sort of duly uh, appointed as a member of the Security Council, right? Uh, you know, where its credentials actually verified after the fall of the Soviet Union. So that that's kind of interesting to try to potentially question the legitimacy of, of Russia's veto. Uh, so we're talking about state responsibility, and of course, the International Court of Justice, which we're talking about now, only hears disputes between states. So to the extent that the ICJ is going to adjudicate any sort of accountability, it will be the accountability, uh, what we call the state responsibility of Russia, the country. Uh, and it's confusing because the ICJ sits in The Hague, as does the International Criminal Court, which is a, a potential forum for individual criminal responsibility. And uh, so when, when we might have seen that meme going around uh, uh, it may have even been an actual road sign, right, in, in Ukraine with all roads had been adjusted, you know, pointing to The Hague. Uh, it was pointing, you know, both to the International Court of Justice and to ICC, uh, the International Criminal Court. So the you know, international courts generally only have jurisdiction by consent, right? States are sovereign. And so, as you mentioned, Scott, uh, there needed to be some sort of hook to bring this matter to the International Court of Justice. You couldn't just, uh, Ukraine couldn't just walk into the ICJ and say, hey, there's this war of aggression going on, please give us some relief. Uh, and so Ukraine was, was really clever. Uh, they pointed out quite rightly that in the lead up to the invasion, not only Putin's rhetoric, but it's sort of the rhetoric coming out of Russia more generally frequently invoked this idea that genocide was going on in Ukraine, that Ukraine was perpetrating genocide. Uh, it wasn't just a casual reference in that, you know, February 23rd speech. It was repeated. Uh, and uh, the Ukrainian legal team did a phenomenal job you know, compiling all of these references to genocide as a pretext for invasion. Now, of course, when we were talking about the use ad bellum a few minutes ago, humanitarian intervention is not recognized as a valid basis for invading another country. Uh, the United Kingdom is, is one of the only countries uh, that has articulated a legal theory for humanitarian intervention in very specific circumstances, including kind of widespread international recognition that some sort of humanitarian uh, disaster is going on. And that's obviously lacking in this case because there seems to be precisely one country that thought uh, or alleged genocide was going on in Ukraine, and that is Russia. So having said all of this, right, as you pointed out, Russia and Ukraine are both parties to this genocide convention, a treaty that says countries will not commit genocide and that they pledge to uh, prevent and punish the crime of genocide, which is, to be specific, targeting members of a group uh, with an intent to destroy the group as such, right? So this is a very specific definition. And Ukraine said something interesting. It didn't allege that Russia was violating the Genocide Convention by committing genocide. Although now that we see the crimes that are going on in Ukraine, some have gone so far as to characterize what Russia is doing as, you know, at least genocidal in nature to the extent that Putin has talked very explicitly about the sort of lack of Ukraine's right to exist as a nation. Uh, but, but more importantly, what Ukraine said is, hey, you know, the Genocide Convention uh, requires, like all treaties, uh, good faith compliance. And Russia is not acting in good faith by pretextually alleging genocide against Ukraine and using that uh, as an unlawful basis for military action. Uh, and as you said, Scott, that the judges did. <laughs> they uh, said, hey, we agree. 
you know, that's at least at this preliminary stage, that's what we call provisional measure stage, where you don't need to convince us fully, you just need to show that you've got kind of a prima facie case and the rights you're alleging under this treaty are plausible. Sounds a little bit like Iqbal and Twombly, right? <laughs> right, Alan, for uh, kind of this, this threshold determination. Uh, yeah, you've crossed that threshold. You've crossed that threshold of, of plausibility in your rights. And so it did, as you said, um, issue what we call provisional measures. And the provisional measures were not really restricted. Ukraine had even been a little bit more modest in its ask. It said, you know, tell Russia pending the outcome of this dispute, uh, don't do anything on the pretext of genocide. And arguably, Russia's already complied with that because as you mentioned, they said, oh no, no, we were just kidding. We never really, this genocide was not the basis for this invasion, self-defense or something else was. But, you know, it's um, it's going to be something interesting to watch. And certainly that the speed with which the ICJ uh, issued this decision shows that uh, everyone, I think, is in the position of trying to do what little they can. I think it's it's also worth asking, well, first emphasizing just how many war crimes the Russian military seems to have committed, which, of course, any war crime is is bad, but the the sheer pace is pretty astonishing. I mean, we went from what seemed to be indiscriminate attacks on uh, civilian areas of major cities, including Kiev, in the initial days of the war, to what we've referenced recently, just the complete leveling of uh, the city of Mariupol in, in Ukraine's south. I mean, war crimes, I, I don't think it's going too far to say that they seem to be an element of the Russian military strategy at this point, which is not surprising to anybody who saw what they did to Grozny during the Second Chechen War, but is still pretty astonishing. Shamina, I also wanted to ask about, um, and Scott, what what you think about the prospects for accountability for Putin personally, because so Biden has explicitly called him a war criminal. I think the Senate the U.S. Senate labeled him a war criminal as well. I'm imagining there's, you know, personal culpability can be leveled here insofar as he is directing this war and called for the initial crime of aggression. What are the prospects for actually holding him accountable in the ICC? Am I wrong that that's unfortunately probably kind of a pipe dream? It's a pipe dream in my view, as long as he's still the Russian leader. So, you know, we could have a whole other podcast episode on immunity issues. Uh, Scott and I have chatted about those on Lawfare with respect to state immunity. It gets pretty complicated. But uh, as long as Russia is a veto-wielding member of the Security Council, overcoming Putin's what we call head of state immunity from prosecution is going to be really challenging. Um, And I'll leave it there. If for some reason uh, there is... Uh, regime change, or if Putin is no longer the head of state of Russia, uh, then I think, Quinta, you're absolutely right. Uh, We talk about command responsibility, uh, both with respect to these war crimes, and then, uh, as you alluded, even the broader crime of aggression, which is more difficult to prosecute. The framework for that uh, is more restricted out of concern that it would be sort of abused. But I think the the hope there is is really in a, a sort of post-Putin Russia. And, and that is something that people are, are trying to focus on. Of course, the counter argument for um, focusing on it too explicitly at this stage is some fear that it might actually uh, trigger Putin by backing him into a corner even more. But to the extent that anything is a one man show, and this obviously isn't, Putin has his supporters and his you know, foot soldiers, um, but it, it seems really that uh, it, it, 
this is coming from him by him and it, it would be really uh, unfortunate to say the least to see him get away with it yeah that that leads kind of nicely into the the last question i want to ask on on this topic which is how efforts to hold russia putin putin's inner circle accountable under international law for the war in ukraine how that should fit into the broader strategy of stopping the war in Ukraine, you know, hopefully on terms favorable to Ukraine, but at the very least on terms that will stop um, the the civilian casualties and and, and the deaths going on. You know, you, you just pointed out that the temptation to threaten Putin with war crime prosecution may actually backfire because it, again, might put him into a corner. And just this morning, I was looking at the New York Times and their ominous headlines about Russian military doctrine about the use of tactical nuclear weapons and, uh, you know, why uh, that is becoming more and more likely as uh, uh, the war goes more and more poorly for uh, for Russia. But I do want to ask the kind of general question. The international issues are important uh, and they can run on parallel tracks, but, but is there some intersection between them and the actual day-to-day or even week-to-week effort on behalf of either Ukraine or its allies to to stop the war? Or is this really just a kind of a separate issue that'll take you know years to resolve once the fighting ends for whatever reason the fighting uh, ends? Well, in an ideal world, the threat of prosecution would actually deter bad behavior, right? That's the deterrent function of criminal law. And so, again, uh, you know, we're obviously not seeing that, but there's no harm continuing to beat the drum. Maybe at least some of the folks who are actually executing uh, on these orders uh, will recognize that it is a war crime and you have criminal responsibility even if you are ordered to do something, right? This is one of the, the Nuremberg principles that came out of the Nuremberg prosecution. So you know, even if Putin is not going to be deterred, maybe some of, of those who are actually conducting the war on the ground uh, could still be. And by deterred, I suppose it means encouraging defections and things like that. Uh, but in the, in the broader scheme of things, Alan, it's, you know, the idea of talking about criminal accountability in the context of an ongoing conflict is a fairly new thing, right? I mean, think back to Nuremberg. That was very much a post-conflict setup. And so the uh, ICC, the International Criminal Court that we mentioned, is investigating the situation. It has jurisdiction to do so for reasons that you you can get into in the show notes, perhaps. But it's a tricky proposition. Uh, And I think the, the worst thing, right, that some have wondered about is if further immunity from prosecution or amnesty could be dangled as a, a bargaining chip in trying to 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 serve as an off-ramp. And I think I, I agree with those who say that would actually be a pretty bad precedent to set, but it again is not um, it's not a new problem. There have been ongoing conflicts in the past where the sort of political negotiations that are aimed at, of course, stopping the conflict, saving as many lives as possible, run up against this desire for accountability. And I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive, but I, I'd love to hear what Scott has to say on the issue. Well, I was going to say, I, you know, I think that actually a lot of the conversation about the intersection of these issues is mistaken for focusing on Putin and high level accountability because the political conditions of getting there and frankly, the political slash legal policy angles that kind of enter into it for a lot of countries, including the United States. In some cases, you think about, you know, how people thought about the Iraq war as a war of aggression and the idea of a former president being brought up on charges for something potentially. There's going to be a lot of resistance or a lot, at least a lot to get over before anybody gets to that point where they're going to wholeheartedly endorse a lot of these ideas, even for Putin. Although, frankly, I think this is the case where states might do it. 
But it has a lot of relevance for the lower level people implementing these policies. Look, I mean, Russian soldiers are at risk of criminal prosecution and facing a long time in jail if they end up in the custody of Ukrainian authorities or European authorities or try and leave Russia at any point, even if this campaign ends somewhat successfully uh, later in their lives. That's pretty dramatic. And what I think is really interesting as we think about this, this is the first major conflict I can think of with this level of density of information being processed and provided at a rapid scale in real time. And where we really have this incredibly developed open source intelligence analysis community that has some problems, but is actually really impressed with what they can do. I'm thinking of the belly cat types and the more professionals, not just your average Twitter Joe uh, engaging in this. And on top of that, the Biden administration is very savvily using transparency as a measure to really change the incentive structure for Russia and the other parties here. I could easily see this fitting into a structure. I mean, what if you did see the United States as allies start very aggressively publicizing, hey, here is the military unit responsible for this action, and here are the military officers responsible for this decision-making, most likely. And starts putting it together, saying, here's the people we know are responsible. We're building a case against you, Russian soldier. I mean, there's the information inefficiencies. There's a reason they may not get correct word of that. But like, I suspect they would at some point. And like that becomes that presents a real different incentive structure for these people lower down the chain that are, have a real risk of legal exposure. I suspect at this stage of the conflict, that's where you're going to see a lot more proactive use of these measures than targeting Putin himself. Well, if you want a segue to cyber, I've got one for you, but you'll decide if you want to move on because uh, have you seen those indictments that the Department of Justice has put on its website uh, indicting actually Russian hackers in certain instances, indicting uh, Chinese Liberation Army operatives, and they have in an appendix the pictures of the guys. And so far, it has been guys who did this, right? Um, Which I think is is intended very much to see, to show, hey, you know, we've literally got our eye on you. So don't think you can hide, you know, under that hoodie and behind that computer screen. I'm not sure that the Chinese Liberation Army hackers are wearing uh, hoodies, (laughs) maybe uniforms. (laughs) But in any event, that the personalization Right, very much of of these actions. Uh, even though we we talk about the responsibility of Russia, that country, it is you know human beings doing this. And Scott, as you say, you know Putin would not have a lot of success if folks weren't there operationalizing his malicious uh, and and really uh, criminal plans. And so you know maybe we should start putting some pictures up there. That would be interesting. You have to get into the whole uh, problem of, you know, you don't want, uh, you got to be careful, of course, in not making mistakes if you're going to do that. But it's, uh, it's a strategy the U.S. has used in the cyber context. So it's an interesting idea. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 
Well, Shemaine has done my transition for me. Uh, so I'm I'm off the hook for, for this week. I will say before I fully transition to cyber, I think another example of that strategy that we've seen is uh, uh, Ukrainian Pravda, different from Russian Pravda, published the names and personal information of, I think, uh, uh, several thousand uh, Russian soldiers in the early weeks of the conflict. Um, we don't know where that information came from or how they got it, but I think that's that's sort of an example, Shemaine, of the kind of thing that, that you're talking about. So on that note, let us fully transition to cyber. So in the early days of the conflict, there were a lot of dire warnings from American experts, government officials, that we were going to see a surge of Russian cyber attacks against uh, Ukraine, against the United States, uh, because of its aid to Ukraine. We haven't really seen that so far. The Biden administration has been emphasizing that uh, people really need to be careful CISA has been uh, sending out messages with the the catchy phrase "shields up," telling people to boost their cybersecurity defenses. The President Biden and um, Ann Newberger, the President's cybersecurity advisor, made comments yesterday. So that's Monday, March twenty first saying essentially that they expect that there may be a major cyber attack coming on American critical infrastructure. At the same time, things have been kind of quiet. There's been some interesting writing about why that might be the case, both from uh, Kieran Martin in Lawfare, a piece that I will recommend to everyone, and Thomas Ridd in the New York Times, suggesting that this some of this might have to do with fear of escalation on Russia's part. Some of it might have to do with just the, the nature of cyber um, as a tool and how it works. Alan, I know you've obviously worked in, in this space. What do you think about this? Like, why aren't we seeing more activity? Yeah, I, it's a very interesting question. I don't think anyone has a good answer yet. And we should note that you know, this war is still uh, not necessarily in its early stages, but it is nowhere near nowhere near completion. And and so we may very well see cyber activity and cyber attacks, you know, going forward. And in fact, one reason why we might not have seen them yet is because this war has turned out differently than the Russian, well, than, than everyone, but especially than the Russians expected, right? So the Russians obviously expected this was going to be a very quick three, four day war. They were going to come in. The Ukrainians were going to surrender. Uh, and so it may have been that they didn't even think that cyber activity was going to be particularly useful. Uh, and now that the war has turned into this long slog, not only do they have to rethink that, but potentially they have to use different uh, strategies uh, than would have been appropriate in a short war. You know, there are other possible explanations. You know, you mentioned some, they may be worried about escalation, though, given that uh, Putin keeps talking about or keeps hinting at the use of tactical nuclear weapons, uh, that, you know, he seems okay escalating. You know, the, it might be that the Russians, frankly, aren't as good as we thought they were, right? Um, you know, this has been one of the big... Um, takeaways from the invasion so far, that uh, they have a lot of good assets on paper. Uh, and when doing very small uh, operations, they can do a very good job. But when it comes to large operations, to the coordination of their you know different types of forces, not to mention their cyber forces, which are obviously still a relatively new tool for them, they may just not have a particularly um, effective uh, method and, and doctrine yet. Um, it's possible that uh, just as um, Russian soldier morale is quite low, it's possible that Russian cyber hacking morale is is not particularly high. And so they're just not 
particularly motivated to do uh, much of a much of a job. You know, another possibility is that the Ukrainian defenses are actually quite good. You know, one thing that we've seen really impressively, not just from the Ukrainians, but from the broader you know international community, is a good amount of knowledge into what the Russians are, are are doing. And so, you know, just as there's a lot of good Western intelligence into conventional Russian tactics, and presumably that's being fed to Ukraine, and the Ukrainians have had time to you know, bolster their defenses against that over the last few years, one has to assume that we potentially have some decent visibility into the Russian um, cyber tactics. And we're telling that to the Ukrainians, and we're telling that to you know our private companies like you know Microsoft and Apple and Google who are probably doing their part to do cyber uh, defense. So you know I, I will say it remains I think too early to say that the Russian cyber threat is a big paper tiger and uh, we've all been wasting our time worrying about it for the past several years. It is notable, however, that you know in the f- first major you know war. Uh, at least in Europe, right? The first major great powers war, one might say, of the last you know, 10 years, we're not seeing anything like the kind of doomsday scenarios that were expected. And that frankly, if you had asked me three weeks ago, I would have said, you know, I'm I would have said that we should at any moment expect the Eastern power grid to go down or a bunch of refineries in Texas to blow up. And, you know, thankfully that hasn't happened yet. That doesn't mean it won't, but it is notable that that it hasn't happened yet. And I think it shows that there's nothing Look, there's nothing magical about cyber, right? It, it's a tool like anything else. It is hard to use well. It has its place, but it, it's not necessarily the, the game changer that I think a lot of folks maybe thought it, it was. Alan, did you really expect the power plants on the eastern seaboard to blow up? Because that would be a pretty big escalation, right? I mean, Russia... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. That's 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 fair. But I mean, we you know for 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 years we've been told that the Russians and the Chinese have penetrated our electrical system and they have logic bombs everywhere. And you know, I mean, one can imagine a different scenario in in which they would have in which in which they would have at least made the lights flicker a little bit. We just haven't seen seen any of that. No, look, we we might in the future. Yeah, sure. There's a <laughs> there's just a big space between lights flickering and things exploding. <laughs> yeah, that is that is totally true. I'm trying to bring some drama to the podcast. You know. Drama around international lawyers who are th- worried about things like self-defense and uh, who, who's an actual belligerent in this conflict is a dangerous thing. This is this is a difference between uh, the Lawfare Podcast and Rational Security. The Lawfare Podcast is very very sober, uh, Shaman, as as you know. And the Ratsec, we like to get a little more exciting. You can, exciting, but you know, again, I'm just wondering, you know, what you were envisioning here. <laughs> I mean, I, I do think that your your point. Shimon gets to something that's useful, which is that maybe, you know, our expectations sort of culturally for cyber have been overinflated by all of these years of of doom saying. And, you know, obviously cyber has played some role, right? I, I opened this segment by referencing what appears to be a hack and leak operation of Russian uh, soldiers' personal information. That wasn't, we don't know if that was state-backed or if it was some enterprising 400-pound hacker sitting in his parents' basement somewhere. Um, but I mean, part of the the Tom Ridd piece that I mentioned in the Times, part of his argument is cyber is playing a role. It's just not, you know, catastrophically blowing things up, perhaps. And it just, I gotta say, and I know Scott wants to get, but why do all hackers, you know, poor, poor hackers who are all 400 pounds now, thanks to the former president? Just to be clear, yeah, we are not fat shaming any hackers or anyone else for that matter. This is a critique of our former president, not not of anybody and however they choose to, uh, you know, live their lives by any stretch of the imagination. I do think that's an important disclaimer to get out there. 
one thing I think you actually really get at this well with Quinta and actually Shimon, your observation about the difference between when you blow something up versus making the lights flicker is a big one. And it always makes me nervous in this space. There's a point Matt Tate, a uh, law firm contributor uh, and cyber expert hit on, on Twitter, I thought was really good, is that we have a really messed up vocabulary for talking about cyber activity. Everything is a cyber attack or cyber war. And in fact, if you buy that cyber activities can rise to the level of something that that would justify a military response, the U.S. position on that, at least as of the Obama administration, I won't see, see any reason to think it's changed, was that it had to be of a nature that would actually rival the effects of an actual armed attack, right? Like that's the sort of thing that can trigger a right of self-defense under international law that actually could begin to enter into the debate about what what actually is a you know active war in a more colloquial sense, not in an international legal sense. That really is probably not what we're talking about for most of the stuff here. You think of a lot of like ransomware attacks and a lot of efforts to shut down a lot of accesses, a lot of websites. That is a will be a far cry from that standard under most measures. Now, you start setting down criminal, critical infrastructure, making things blow up. I think targeting hospital systems is probably one because if there's a clear nexus to like loss of life there, although that's like a little periphery because how much of that is a direct effect of the computer system coming down, how much of that is a direct effect of, you know, a lot of other factors that go into those circumstances. It's, it's a hard line to draw. We have to be really careful about how we think about and talk about this stuff when you're talking about cyber activity in the context of an armed conflict because of those risks of escalation cycles. Uh, but we don't have a good vocabulary for it. We've just grown up talking about cyber activity in the context of cyber war and cyber attack. And that's really a problematic way to think about it in this particular circumstance. Yeah, that's a total hobby horse of mine, Scott. I actually have a piece that uh, Mika Oyang and I wrote uh, before she went over to, to DOD to, to take the cyber portfolio. And uh, I think you know our point is that a lot of this, we call it MCA, right? Malicious cyber activity uh, should not automatically be, be put in the war bucket, uh, even colloquially, because as you said, it, it really does escalate things. Well, another possibility here I want to raise is... In terms of what we know and what they don't know, there's also a question about what Russia knows and doesn't know, right? Like Russia shows off its cyber capability or has been showing off its cyber capabilities a lot for the last few years as part of its general effort to assert itself on the main stage, to push against international norms, the same way we see them using their intelligence capability to poison dissidents in foreign countries in reckless ways. They've also deployed and kind of unleashed the hounds a little bit on these particularly like quasi-state-sponsored, quasi-independent criminal cyber hack, cyber activity groups and letting them, you know, engage in a lot of activities that might target Russian enemies, might target a bunch of other people as well. But it's all kind of a, a little bit of a show to show how strong they are. And we've shown that Russia, like, you know, maybe exaggerating a little bit. The United States takes a very different perspective, as far as I can tell. Like, we don't openly respond to cyber activities directly that often at all. But does that mean we can't? Does Russia confident that that means we can't? I actually think there may be a stronger uh, deterrent effect going the other direction in terms of there's a lot of potential U.S. cyber capabilities that may yet be undeployed that may be serving as a bit of a deterrent effect on the Russian side as well. You know, I, I, I'm not sure exactly, but I, I, I suspect that's part of the calculus. Now, maybe we'll see how the United States begins to respond to some of these measures if Russia does ratchet it up as the Biden administration appears to be anticipating. And that'll be interesting because maybe the first real time we get a strong sense of U.S. response capabilities at their full you know, full bear at the at, at actually fully being unleashed up to this extent. Um, although maybe they won't even be fully unleashed at that point. There may be a good argument for keeping things even further in reserve, again, if, if the conflict itself actually escalates. 
So Quinta, you raised the question. I'm, I'm curious, do you have a hypothesis or, you know, are there, is there lots that we're not seeing going on behind the scenes, maybe successful defense against cyber attacks? And see there, there I went just using the cyber attack word. So you see how pervasive it is. Uh, or, you know, do we have all this uh, capability in reserve on both sides that sort of the, the new, the new deterrent, although interestingly, right, a more covert deterrent, perhaps, uh, than something like the nuclear weapons that, uh, Alan slipped into the conversation earlier just so that we all have a harder time sleeping tonight. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's it's going to be a really interesting question. It does seem like the Biden administration is expecting that something's going to happen that will perhaps become public. Uh, so I wonder if this conversation, you know, if, if we had this conversation a week later, <laughs> whether uh, we would be saying very different things. Well, going from computer viruses to actual viruses... Let's talk about one of our favorite recurring segments here uh, on Rational Security, and that is the global coronavirus pandemic, because we've seen some interesting developments working to some extent, some would argue, I would argue, at cross purposes with the last few weeks. We've seen signs that there may be a new strain of the coronavirus emerging in parts of Europe and Africa. We've seen parts of Europe uh, where hospitalization rates have begun to creep up, exposure rates and rates of incidence of uh, the coronavirus are up because of what people suspect is an Omicron variant that is more contagious, uh, although the Biden administration has been very clear. There's no reason to think our existing uh, vaccines and other things won't equally work well against it. But at the same time, we haven't seen uh, much of a move towards greater preparation you might expect in the United States, given that many of these prior waves in Europe, Africa, and elsewhere have resulted a few weeks later in the wave crashing on American shores. To the contrary, we've seen this continual relaxing of mask mandates and other policies. You know, people are eating inside at restaurants. I went to a concert for the first time a couple weeks ago indoors. I was masked. My wife was masked. No one else was in the entire concert, uh, which was uh, a little bit much to deal with, honestly, after being uh, so restrained for so many years uh, at this point. It is it's really exceptional how quickly things are moving back to pre-pandemic normal and not just in the streets, but also in Capitol Hill, because we see the United States Congress recently slashed a major, major amount of funds, $15 billion or so, from the Biden administration's request for resources for combating the pandemic. That is could cause a variety of consequences, including an inability to purchase uh, retroviral drugs and future vaccine doses to make them readily available, meaning for free, to American citizens. Um, what should we make about this sort of approach? Is it just that it's become too political? Is it two people are too exhausted to begin preparing? Like it seems like we should for another wave of this thing? Or are we just going to be constantly in a reactive mode as these things waiting, having to wait for these things to actually have implications on our shores before we can really react to it? Quinta, why don't I turn it to you for our, uh, for our, our first response to that? Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, I think it's that we're in a fundamentally reactive posture. Um, I mean, what what I've been thinking about during this whole sort of COVID is still happening, but nobody in the U.S. seems to care, or very, fewer people in the U.S. seem to care cycle, is a really interesting, uh, another New York Times op-ed by, uh, I think his name is John Barry. He wrote a really interesting book about the 1918 flu, where there was a, also a second wave of that flu, and people just kind of didn't care. <laughs> they were sick of it. They didn't want to engage in mitigation measures anymore, and the effect was that the that wave of the flu is extremely deadly. 
And so perhaps there's a little bit of comfort there insofar as it turns out that people have always been stupid and short-sighted. <laughs> but it does seem to me to have really unfortunate echoes in today that, I mean, Ed Young had a great piece in The Atlantic, the sort of chronicler of, of COVID, about how unbelievable it is that Congress is letting money lapse for COVID at the same time as, you know, there there's a new variant, the effects of the virus are still very real, especially on people who are in vulnerable populations. It seems like the reason that this money uh, ran out is because of essentially a spat within Congress where Republicans didn't think the money was needed. Uh, their compromise was to take money uh, that had been set aside for other purposes for states. Democrats didn't like that. And the end effect was that no money was legislated for. That sounds like a pretty normal political dispute, frankly. The problem is that we're in an extraordinary circumstance. And it strikes me as pretty astonishing, if unsurprising, that the the response to a kind of political dust up like that is to everyone, you know, just kind of shrug their shoulders and say, oh, well, we'll, we'll figure it out. But we're already seeing the effects of this. I mean, I saw a report right before we started recording that the Biden administration is saying uh, it may not have money enough to purchase free boosters for everybody. It's just unbelievably short-sighted. And I, it seems pretty clear that it's just going to, you know, extend the the cycles of the pandemic that we've been living through, where we ping pong back and forth from, hooray, this is over, everybody take their masks off, to, oh no, what were we thinking? We were show, so short-sighted a month ago. Yeah, I, I, I agree totally with that, Quinta. And I think it's part of it is just as a society, we're just very, very bad at public health investment. Uh, and it is completely bizarre to cut money from pandemic response or pandemic preparedness, um, given that the ROI on that is just so incredibly high. It is just so much cheaper to test and prevent uh, than to deal with with the costs of, of pandemic, right? And so um, I am uh, I, I fully share in your criticism of, of Congress. I, I do want to zoom out a little bit. I mean, I guess I'm like rat sex resident both sides person. Um, Because I I do, I do want to situate this, I think, a little bit in the context of the the bigger political and social pathology that we have around COVID, which is this aggressively binary thinking about it, right? That either we have to throw everything we have at the problem, we have to stay locked down, we have to mask forever, or it's awesome, and everything's over, and we have to worry about it anymore. And, and I think what we've seen over the last few years, um, you know, I think largely driven by the, the hyper-politization of the disease on the right, the anti-vax movement on the right, which I think is the biggest impediment by far to getting past COVID or, or dealing with the problem. But we also see, I think, a little bit of that on the left in the, I think, sometimes unwillingness or difficulty in psychologically moving from the posture at the beginning of the pandemic to learning to to deal with it. Um, and, you know, there was an interesting, I forget, uh, we'll, we'll link to this, I'll find this and link to this in the show notes. I don't know if this is the Times or the Post, but there was a very interesting finding that most Americans actually have a fairly similar view on how dangerous COVID is, except for the most liberal Americans for whom COVID is like, they think it's three times as dangerous, Right. And so, you know, this is part of of the general fact that politics and ideology, you know, can distort uh, your views on on really um, on really anything. And and so, uh, you know, I, I do think that the answer to this new wave, assuming that it is 
you know, not game changing, right? And it, it increases hospitalizations somewhat, but you know, we don't go back to to the, the worst days of Omicron. The, the answer to that can't be that um, you know we we go back to the the lockdowns and mask mandates everywhere. I frankly don't think anyone wants that. Even most Democrats want that. But but I do agree with you, Quinta, that that trying to say, well, COVID is done, rather than COVID is going to become an endemic problem, and that we have to invest in a smart way to help those who. You know, because they're unvaccinated or immunocompromised uh, are still at risk. I, I think that's obviously an important thing. And it's a shame that Congress isn't, isn't doing that. You know, this is, um, right, it's beyond infuriating. And I think, Alan, you know, you and Quinta ha, ha, have both pointed out there's political short-termism going on here. There's culture wars. I don't know if some of you saw that. I think it was a Wall Street Journal op-ed of a woman sort of berating herself for having actually put on a mask during a performance instead of storming out. And uh, and there's also an element, of course, of, of the Republicans seeming to think that their sole role in government right now is, is to sabotage anything that the administration might try to do to advance U.S. national interests. But I, I also think that we don't conceptualize public health as a national security issue. Right. Uh, and so we happily or some happily throw seven hundred billion dollars at the Pentagon uh, and then squabble over 15 billion for for covid response. Uh, and I'm torn about that because on the one hand, when we sort of securitize everything, we end up with things like Title 42 in the immigration context where we use you know, public health as a pretext to uh, essentially close down the border. But on the other hand, you know, we're talking so much about possible escalation with Russia and not wanting to uh, actually get into a direct conflict. And, you know, what happens if they use tactical nuclear weapons? Well, you know, what has killed the most Americans by far in recent years? And it's COVID. So uh, I think the the framing of this is, is just really distorted. And it is, uh, Scott, like you, the sort of disjunction between, uh, hey, everyone's back in the streets partying versus, oh, this could be really bad. <laughs> we maybe should like not get this virus if we can avoid it. Uh, it's, uh, it's, a really, it's a really tricky situation and, and infuriating, I think, is, is probably the word that best captures it for me. I'll just put on on the record that for once I actually agree with Alan's both sides in here. Um, I, yes. I do I do think that I mean look, look part of public health is mitigation, not stamping something out entirely. And we learned this in the United States the hard way with the HIV AIDS crisis, right? You want to create a situation where you put restrictions in place that people can live with over a long period of time, and that they will actually you know, abide by rather than saying, lock everything down. Nobody goes out, you know, during HIV AIDS, nobody go to the bathhouse, right? Um, you have to create a situation that is actually livable for people. And I, I do think that the this urge in certain corners to say COVID, you know, will kill you in five seconds. The vaccines don't work. The idea that vaccines don't work particularly for disabled and immunocompromised people, I think, is actually extremely dangerous because I do worry that that, that kind of idea uh, discourages people who are vulnerable from getting the vaccine, which isn't to say that you know precautions uh, need to be made for those people and that we should all be more careful so that they can remain healthy and safe. But no, I think I think that the the politicization of COVID has had negative effects on both sides of the aisle, and it does seem like there's a kind of 
I'll use the ping pong metaphor again, you know, each side gets more extreme in response to the extremes of the other side. You know, if the right, if the far right says COVID doesn't exist, then certain people on the left and center left have an incentive to say, actually, it does exist and it will kill you in five seconds flat. And that's just, it's neither realistic nor sort of healthy as a polity, nor a good way for dealing with what is actually, you know, a deadly disease. And Quinta, and, and it's not just that, that, you know, some folks on the left say it's a very deadly disease, but there's wrapping up of one's moral worth in a huge amount of caution in in the same way that on the right, now there's wrapping up of one's moral worth in throwing caution to the wind and showing courage in the face of, of, of this disease. And, And it's the moralization of, I think, our COVID politics that makes it so difficult to come up with a more rational and kind of more useful policy response. Yeah, I agree with all of that. But I think it actually may reflect just something more fundamental about how we structure public policy in our democracy. That's particularly when you compare it to like, you know, parliamentary systems or, or other places in the world. You know, we just don't have a federal government that's actually super structured to anticipate and respond to things up front. Because we just, for lack for to way oversimplify it, we have a system really rife with checks checks and balance, if you want to call it, but checks are particularly relevant here. You have to get a high level of consensus to get aggressive new policy measures, particularly when you're talking about new funding, particularly when you're talking about how to implement it. And that's just a really challenging thing to do in our system. We saw in the early 20th century, the administrative state kind of come about as a way to try and solve this in a lot of other policy areas. The idea was, look, it's really hard for Congress to actually like stay on top and enact legislation when you have fast moving things. So we're going to enact framework legislation, delegate authority to the executive branch. Now that's hyper politicized for some reasons that are at times legitimate. Uh, I think, and for a lot of reasons that aren't always that legitimate uh, or really boil down to policy discrepancies. It's just a problem we have in that when you're looking for something so far ahead and you're competing against other priorities to get that high level of consensus, particularly in a politically divided, culturally divided area, it's just a heavy, heavy lift. And so often we don't really start responding to crises until we experience crises. And a lot of times we don't respond to them even after we're experiencing them for an extended period. If you think about everything from climate change to gun control and a variety of other issues and just is fitting into that same pattern, I think. What I think you may see is different responses at the state level, which we're already seeing, like states taking really different approaches, right? But uh, you know that just leads to this problematic situation, which is that, well, what if we have two Americas around the COVID experience where you have some states taking uh, or some localities taking zero precautions pretty seriously and other ones not? Uh, and how reliant are they on federal resources, right? Like are people who are underprivileged economically going to be able to afford the vaccines when the federal government's no longer paying for them or have health care that covers them? It's a lot of really complicated questions. I suspect we're going to get to an answer on it eventually. I actually think a lot of these things are going to get decontextualized, depoliticized, in part because the Biden administration pretty clearly seems to think that it's not going to make this a leading issue anymore. If you watch the State of the Union, the COVID pandemic fight like really fell pretty low. It's still addressed very squarely. They clearly have a policy agenda, but it's not something they're going to try and make the frontline issue like it was for their first year. I think that reflects the difficult politics and frankly, the difficult policy challenges it poses. But in reality, I think the thing that's really going to drive a more eventual policy on this is that more people are going to get sick and people are going to suffer the economic consequences and some people are going to die. Uh, And that's going to happen disproportionate to how people actually adopt measures that are meant to prevent those consequences. And at some point, people will will give people the pressure to actually get over some of these political framings. But, you know, our system, sometimes that's what it takes to really persuade people to to break through those log jams. On that happy note, 
Um, we are sadly out of time today. But of course, this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to think on over the course of the week. Shemen, normally we would let our guests close us out on our object lessons, but you may have to step away a few minutes early. So I'm going to turn it over to you for the first object lesson. Uh, yes, no, the uh, the recording in the morning means that there's a round of school drop-offs that need to happen. So, uh, wow, this is my first object lesson. Uh, I found a number of months ago a picture of my grandparents uh, that was taken sometime around, you know, sort of the 1940s, early 50s in Budapest, uh, where they lived. And depending on, you know, when it was taken, uh, my grandmother had actually spent part of World War II hiding my grandfather because they were Jewish. Um, so it's a, a fraught time. And the reason that this picture jumped to mind, Scott, when, when you and the others asked me to, to bring something for an object lesson is because uh, my grandparents with uh, their three kids fled Hungary in 1956 when the Soviet tanks rolled in uh, to Budapest. And, and those who know about the 1956 Hungarian Revolution and then its, its very quick suppression at the hands of the Soviets will remember that unusually uh, neighboring countries, and in particular Austria, actually welcomed something upwards of 200,000 refugees at the time, um, which was huge. And even more than that, something like 37 countries stepped up to participate in resettlement efforts. And so my dad's family ended up uh, in Canada. And the reason that is sort of with me so much now is not just, of course, seeing the images of uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the, the urban warfare that's going on uh, and this idea of the sort of rekindling of the, the Soviet empire, but it's also because they were welcomed. And the reason they were welcomed was very political. It's that they were fleeing uh, the imposition of a, a hardline communist regime. And so they were the lucky ones. And when we look at the very deserving reception of Ukrainian refugees now, it's very difficult for me not to think, as so many others have pointed out, about the Syrian refugees, the Afghan refugees, the uh, Ukrainian uh, Ukrainians of color and uh, people in Ukraine who don't look like uh, your typical white European who are being stopped and not allowed to cross or being put to the back of the line. And so it's a, a lesson in um, that the international community can create the capacity when they have the political will to do so, uh, but also a stark reminder that that political will uh, has been all too selective, uh, not only in recent times, but in a previous generation as well. Well, Shaman, thank you so much for sharing that. Alan, I'll hand over to you for our next object lesson. So uh, my object lesson, I'm going to an uh, old uh, standby category, is the TV that my uh, my wife and I are watching. So I highly recommend Severance, which is a new TV show on uh, Apple Plus, uh, which I thought I was going to cancel after uh, Foundation ended its season, but I am not canceling uh, because of Severance, and I'm sure they'll come up with some other show to keep me paying my whatever $7 a month it is uh, or whatnot. Um, but it's a terrific show. Uh, it's It has uh, Adam Scott uh, as the, the lead character. Um, it has... Um, Patricia Arquette and Christopher Walken and John Turturro and some other great folks. It's hard to explain the premise, but basically the idea is that this uh, creepy biotech company has developed a technology that basically splits your consciousness so that when you're at work, you only remember and are aware of yourself at work. And when you're at 
not at work, the same applies. So it's an interesting uh, <laughs> extension of the idea of work-life balance. I would call it a sort of creepy psychological thriller with some psychological horror elements in it, but it's not scary. Um, but it is so interesting. It's incredibly moody. It's gorgeously shot um, with this really interesting kind of 1950s aesthetic. Um, anyone who has seen Counterparts, which is another great kind of sci-fi show, um, it had a, a bit of that vibe. You know, we're about halfway through the first season. We're totally confused, totally in like fascinated. Highly, highly, highly recommend uh, Severance uh, for your next TV viewing experience. Quinta, how about you? I also have a piece of media. Mine is a little more cheerful, perhaps. Um, It is the Disney Pixar film Turning Red, which you may have seen ads for. It is about a 13-year-old girl who turns into a giant red panda. It is delightful. I loved it. Highly recommended. Very charming. I think does something actually like new and interesting within the confines of the, you know, coming of age tensions with the parents story and just made me laugh. There is a boy band, like an early 2000s boy band parody in it that was frighteningly on the nose. Uh, I found myself humming the main song like all day after uh, I watched the movie. Um, Definitely recommend if you're just looking for something to make you smile and put a little pep in your step after our extremely depressing conversation today. Well, I was going to talk about a television show, but now I feel like that's not original. So I'll go back to another well and I'll talk about drinking uh, a little bit, uh, another cocktail. <laughs> Listener, Scott didn't actually have a television show. He just I did. I did. Drinking. It's a television show about sobriety, which is ironic you know, in hindsight, <laughs> but I'll save that for a future week because I feel like we got to mix it up a little bit here. Uh, springtime is in the air. It is beginning to get warm. It is lovely. It's a great time to sit outside and have a refreshing cocktail. So I will pass along what has become one of my favorite summer cocktails. It's a little heavy, so you have to tread a little bit lightly. Uh, I don't have a good name for it. It was in the New York Times. I think it was the New York Times cooking section at some point a couple of years ago. They didn't have a good name for it either. Some people I've seen call it the man spritz, which strike me as inappropriately gendered for what is a drink that people of any gender preference or orientation can choose uh, to enjoy. But essentially what it is, you take a hoppy IPA and you put in a strong dose of Campari, about two oh. ounces or about a half in the IPA and with a strong dose of citrus on some ice. Careful because it's going to foam up like a crazy person. But other than that, it is phenomenal once it levels out. It's got that bite and a little bitterness from the hopper. The Campari really blends in well. I would actually use actual Campari here, not like Capoletti or something more subtle, but actually go for the kind of like cloyingly sweet, bittersweet Campari. It's delightful and a great summer treat, uh, particularly as it gets really hot. We're not quite there yet, but uh, hopefully soon. So I thought I would pass that along. I, that sounds really tasty. I do have a follow-up question, though. Uh, two follow-up questions. One, what are the what are the ratios that you've been using? And the second question is, what sort of IPA, right? Because you could go the the super bitter, resiny, piney West Coast IPA, or you could go the juicy, hazy, soft East Coast IPA. I, I, I wonder, I suspect West Coast IPA, given how sweet Campari actually is. But then I wonder if you get too much bitterness. Uh, so the classic one that I use is the Lagunitas uh, IPA, which I think is a delightful blend. It is West Coasty, but not like too over the top. Uh, I think if you get it like too piney, it's going to be, it's just going to hit like the floral nose wrong in Campari. But I could be wrong. Maybe it's worth trying. But that's what I usually do. And I, like I said, I put about 
two ounces in a tall glass, put it with lots of ice, and then put the beer on top slowly. Um, so it ends up being about like a half beer for like two ounces of Campari. And then I do like several wedges of lime or lemon, really, mm. whatever your preference is. Um, it's delightful. I strongly encourage it. Just be careful of that foaming up, though, because it is crazy. It's not something you can pour lightly. It like really comes out of nowhere. It's a little annoying. If you put it in the bottle, it'll just come shooting out the top. So don't try and do that. It's like one of those elementary school experiments with the the volcano with baking soda and vinegar. Yeah, it's like the science experiment a cool kid would do in high school. <laughs> exactly. It's a volcano that you chug. Exactly. Exactly. Well, on that very mature note, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. <laughs> Rational Security 2.0 is like its forebearer production of Lawfare. You can still find our show page at lawfareblog.com where you will find liner notes for this episode, including links to the articles and object lessons we discussed. You can also purchase Rational Security swag at thelawfarestore.com or go to patreon.com slash lawfare to become a material supporter of Lawfare for ad-free podcast feeds and other special benefits, including a committed ad-free feed for this podcast. Please do follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. And whenever and wherever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review or hit that share button and pass it along to your loved ones. Look out for our other podcasts, including the Lawfare Podcast, our daily podcast on national security matters, Chatter, our regular but quasi-weekly uh, long-form interview series, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, The Aftermath. Also, be sure to check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Hamzish 2 of Go Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-hosts, Alan and Quinta, and our guest, Shaman Keitner, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Till then, goodbye. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. <laughs>